Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hi, Carol. How are you doing today? I'm just fine. I'm not going to call you the queen of touchy-feely. I'm going to call you the Zarina of touchy-feely. Oh, Give me something like more it. glamorous to begin I with. I like that even better. I think it's much more classy <laughs> than queen. I mean, it's such an overused term, right? And my and my Russian grandparents are so happy in their grave. They're brain. bursting with joy <laughs> that their heritage finally comes up. But, but let's start there, right? Touchy-feely. Okay. Yes. Do you like that term? I do. You do. And why is that? And I, and I will tell you why. I like it because it's what the students named the class. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And what it says to me, what it means to me, is that they made it their own Yes. by giving yes. it their label. Now, some of my colleagues, for a while, David didn't like it. First accept it and then like it and then understand why it might be a good thing. Yes. And, you know, I think that one of the there are two reasons one reason that i like it is because the students made it their own yes. the other reason i like it is that so much of the course the emphasis of the course is on the importance of feelings and yes. emotion and so the feely part of touchy-feely maybe not the touchy part yeah. but the feely part is actually very accurate when you say accurate what does that mean I mean that it points to one of the things that make us more interpersonally effective, our ability to access our feelings, our ability to speak our feelings, our ability to invite others to talk about what they're feeling. All of these uh, elements that actually are what create connection, that has been socialized out of many of us. Yes. Especially in business. Yeah. Well, think about it, right? When you when you go into any MBA program, especially at the age most MBA students go in around, you know, 26 to 30, they're still right. so young in their careers that they assume functional skills like building financial models is what's going to propel them to success. So they aren't yes. yet at an age where they understand the limitations of those tools. That's correct. So How, one, so, one of the advantages that the Stanford students have, yeah. though, is all the alums who say to them, yeah, all those skills are going to get you your first job, maybe your second job, but if you want to actually yes. end up running things, whatever you do, don't miss taking touchy-feely. But that's interesting because I completely agree with you, right? But one of the challenges we have when we coach managers, senior managers, even sometimes CEOs, they always yeah. tell us they want to learn how to think strategically. Yeah. My advice to them is that if you're a true leader, someone should be doing the strategic thinking for you. You shouldn't be locked in a room for a week analyzing spreadsheets, right? You have a team to manage. You have an organization to manage. You need to find ways to connect with them, as you say, yep. and understand what motivates them and what they need to you know, move their careers ahead. You know, when I read your book, Connect, I was thinking that you and David could actually do advice on how couples can improve their marriages, right? Because it's, the thinking is very similar. Well, funny story. Yeah. We actually were interviewed by uh, a feature editor from the Sunday Times in London 
with he and his wife had David and I yeah on a call and they wrote he wrote a whole piece that was featured in the Sunday paper of the London Times and this is about about, this is about marriage counseling? in our book and, this is and it was about their marriage oh Dr. Phil has some competition you guys could have your own talk show soon right <laughs> Do you feel that people are now talking more about the touchy-feely subject because it's politically correct to do that? Or do you feel there's an actual shift in what skills we appreciate as leaders? I think it's a great question. And I, I actually, I use my own experience at Stanford over mm -hmm. almost 20 years as, uh, as one data point in mm -hmm. answering that, which is that I know uh, and of course, David was there far before I got there. Yes. One of the things that we noticed was a shift in the, when I arrived at Stanford, they were teaching four sections of 36 students a mm -hmm. year. By the time I left in 2017 to start my own business, uh, we were teaching 12 sections of 36 students. And I think some of that is a reflection of uh, an awareness that started to really bubble up on the heels of Daniel Goldman's, you know, uh, seminal yes. work on emotional yes. intelligence and the research that showed that leaders that had higher emotional intelligence tended to be more successful. Yes. And yes. I want to go back to something that we were just talking about where, where we were kidding about the marriage counseling. I, David and I, and those of us who taught touchy feely, we get, emails from former students 10 years, 15 years later, with the predictable, you know, I just I just became a CEO, I owe it all to what I learned in this class. I just got promoted to executive vice president, I owe it all to what I learned in Touch of Healing. But we also get, I'm pretty sure your class just saved my marriage. And we also get emails like I got a few weeks ago from a student who said, you know, my mother and I weren't talking to each other and I went and dusted off my notes from the class. I bought her the book and we've reconciled our relationship. Wow. Well, to add to your story, I've actually been using your tennis net analogy. Uh, you know, the one about, well, you obviously know it, you developed it, uh, the one about <laughs> intent, uh, yep. action and impact. And I thought it was such a simple but such a profound way of capturing the way we escalate and misinterpret and sometimes just lose complete focus of what we want to discuss in the first place. Right? Absolutely. So the net analogy brings a lot of focus. And where does that come from? How did you develop that? Well, actually, David is the one who yeah. originally developed it. And so you'd have to ask him where it came from. Yes, probably tennis. Um, no, I, well, maybe. I think that as, as we started using it more and more, we added more to it. And as you do with anything, yes. right? So, so the idea that there are three realities yeah. in any exchange between two people is a David Bradford genius concept. Yes. Which is there's the reality that I know, which is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. There's what I do, reality number two, which is the only reality known to both of us. And there's the impact of what I did on mm -hmm. you, which is reality number three. And the problem with so much, so many interpersonal dynamics is that we forget that there are these three realities. Yes. So when I say something like, well, you obviously don't care, yeah. unless yeah. you've said, I don't care, I'm in your reality. I don't know whether you care or not. And the minute, and that's what we call over the net. Yes. Because there's this metaphorical net between what I know, which is my intent and my, and my behavior, and 
the impact on you. So if we reverse that, you did something, the impact on me was that I felt dismissed. I felt dismissed mm-hmm. is on my side of the net. It's my reality. You can't, if I say, gee, when you said that, I felt dismissed, you can't say, no, you didn't. Yes. It's my experience. But when I say, I feel that you don't care, first of all, there's not a single feeling word in there. Yeah. It's cuting a motive and yes. it's over the net. And the minute I make an attribution like that, you get defensive. Of course I care. And then pretty soon we're not having a very functional exchange. Yeah, I mean, that's just each party is defending themselves. And when you're defending yourself, you're focusing on yourself as opposed to working together constructively. But what I like is it's such a simple model, right? Because I've seen many pieces of work by different people. And it's very interesting and very useful, very insightful. Some of these people you obviously work with are very smart, but it's very hard to use some of their frameworks. Yeah. Because it's not practical. Right. It's hard to remember all the pieces, you know. Yes. And you know, look, the utility of models in general, even though I'm not a career academic, I love models. And the reason I love models is that they help us make sense and order our experience. Yes. So to the extent that you can help me make more sense out of what happened there, <laughs> yeah. how did we end up there, then the model is useful. To the extent you start adding bells and whistles where, you know, that they're, that are no longer core yeah. to what I'm trying to learn. Now you actually make it worse for me. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, when I was a um, strategy partner, you know, strategy consultants love frameworks. The most powerful frameworks, are the ones that stick to the kernel, yeah. but they can't be applied to every company because when you start making so many adjustments to the framework that it can be relevant to every single situation, it's it basically lost its meaning. That's, right? that's exactly right. And, and I, I like this because it's so simple. Yeah. And I do want to go back to something you said earlier about leaders, um, you know, asking for, you know, how to be better, develop better strategies mm-hmm. and be more strategic thinkers. I wanted to say two things about that. The first is that a leader's job is not to provide the best answer. And this, by the way, I learned from yes, David. That's true. A leader's job is to ensure that the best answer can be found. Yes, very profound. And the minute minute a leader falls into the trap of thinking that he or she has to have the answer, they're already in trouble. They've disempowered their people. They've taken on way too much of the responsibility. They're going to end up exhausted. Yes. I mean, the way I think about it is a a good leader is brilliant at outsourcing things. he's He's a reallocator of resources. But as soon as a leader says, this is so difficult, so important, I've got to roll up my sleeves and do it myself. Yeah. Yeah. There are so many things wrong with that, starting with the fact that there's no one being trained to do the task. Exactly. Not a very sustainable strategy, it's, by the way. You mean you may do very successful over a year or two years, but what happens when the leader retires and the next bench of leadership needs to step in? Oh, and how often have we seen that? I remember, you know, back in the day, everyone used to, to, to talk about General Electric. You, you know, General Electric was on the cover of Fortune magazine maybe eight times. I don't know the actual number, but yeah. it was on the cover of Fortune yeah. magazine many times between 1990 and 2000. And then when Jack Welch left, the greatest leader or whatever of all time. I'm not saying he wasn't, but you couldn't judge it at that time until you saw what he had developed in terms exactly. of the leadership conveyor belt, you, you have to wait at least 10 years before you make these proclamations. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason I bring this up is because when we talk about touchy-feely, really it's about leadership, right? Yeah, 
if we use the word leadership in the way I think about it broadly, good leaders are good learners. Yes. And by the way, we're all works in progress. So shouldn't we all be learning about ourselves and others all the time? Yes. Well, the world changes so much. How can you not be learning? Second of all, people do business with people. We say mm. that in the book. And we and, you know, they don't do business with strategies. They don't do business with ideas or money or products. I mean, those matter. But in the end, if you don't get the people part right, good luck building a sustainable organization long term. It's bigger than that if you think about it, because I forget the name of this dean, but it was the former dean of the Kellogg School of Business. And I think mm. she had a background which came from the sort of touchy-feely sciences, I forget which one. But she explained it very well, whereby she said that if you take capitalism and break it down to its most basic pieces, it's two parties who want to do a deal. You need to have a buyer and a seller. It's, that's what capitalism is. And unless the buyer and the seller trust each other in yes. some way, capitalism collapses. Yep. So when I, when I think, when I was reading your work and in you know, David's work, and so on, I was thinking, you know, we forget it's not touchy-feely. This is the basic building block of capitalism. Yeah, it's whether you can, you can empathize, connect with someone and in a sincere way so that, you know, I hate using the word win-win, but that's really what you're trying to do, right? Build yeah. relationship where both parties benefit. Well, and it's pretty hard to trust somebody you don't feel in the least bit connected to. That's true, right? The other thing I'll add is that it's pretty easy to connect with people that are just like you, or it's easier. Yes. Much harder to connect with people that are different than you. And I often thought that the course at Stanford should be called Connecting Across Differences, not Interpersonal oh, like Differences. Because that's much harder. And that's what the students learn that is so powerful. And when you say connecting across the aisle, it's a different gender, different nationalities, different viewpoints, different, different countries. Different cultures, different, you know, different backgrounds, different belief systems. It's interesting because if you look at one of the you know, concepts that I always tell people, if you watch the media very carefully, if the media doesn't like a certain group of people, it dehumanizes them. Yeah. It will never publish a story about the daily life of a soldier of a country that we don't like. Because yeah. as soon as you do that, you humanize them, you make them like you. It's like reaching across the aisle, as you say, right? It's actually acknowledging that what binds us to, that what we have in common is that we're both human beings. Yes, but how do you teach this? I mean, how, how do you teach someone this? Because I understand the value, I've been in business a long time, so I've been through you know, the phases of growth to know the hard skills only get you so far. Yeah. But even if you've got people that have been referred by alums of Stanford, you're going to have skeptical people, even if they're not skeptical. How do you get them to understand the key principles? Well, so first of all, you don't learn how to be more interpersonally effective by reading about it. Yes. We have a book and I'll come back to how we address this problem in the book or listening to us lecture about it. You mm -hmm. actually have to engage with each other. So we create these small groups groups of 12 students in something called T-groups. The mm -hmm. T stands for training, not therapy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we give them opportunities to learn what it is that they do that draws other people closer and distances people, that creates more connection, less connection, that has other people trust them or not trust them, that makes other people feel safer or less safe. And they learn that through experience. I say something and Jane over here says, wow, thank you so much for sharing that because it makes me 
you know, a little bit more open to telling you more about me. And Joe over here says, actually, I found that really intimidating. <laughs> and pretty soon I learn that I, you know, I have to, I have to learn, you know, we talk about this in the book, yes. but there are two antennas. Yeah. So there's the internally yes. focused antenna yes. that picks up like what's going on for me. And there's the externally oriented antenna that's picking up what's going on for you. Yes. And the more you yes. learn to hone the signals and pick up subtle cues on both ends, the more likely you are to be interpersonally effective. Then the other thing that we do, in addition to putting them in these groups where they have to interact with each other, we have them journal and talk about, so mm -hmm. what'd you learn about yourself in that interaction? And what do you want to do next time when you're having another conversation with Joe and Jane? And so there's this constant ex both experiential learning and drawing knowledge from the experience and then feeding it back into the next experience that they go through for an entire quarter. That's why it's so life-changing. I mean, and I find that sort of Western MBA programs in general probably have some advantage because the makeup of the class must be so diverse. Yes, 40% of our students at Stanford are, are international. Wow, 40%. How do you do this? Do you, do you deliberately seed a controversial topic or is it just a natural process? Well, one of the really fascinating things about T-group methodology and, is that by design, when we create a T-group, we take out a lot of what's normally present in any group. So there is, we create a deliberate vacuum. And what I mean by that is there is no predetermined agenda. Okay. There is no predetermined leader. There are no predetermined roles and responsibilities. And so guess what happens? You've got 12 students and two facilitators who jo whose job is just to keep everything from going off the rails, but not to set an agenda or do any teaching. Now you've got 12 students sitting around and they're like, well, what shall we talk about? There's silence. One person finally says, well, why don't we all go around and introduce ourselves? And, you know, somebody else says, I think, okay. And somebody starts, somebody else says, you know, this is boring. I don't think that, how are we going to get to know each other by just talking about what we always talk about? And then somebody else says, well, do you have a better idea? And guess what? Instantly, a ton of data has been generated. Yes. People have reactions to every like one this. of those students. And then what we've done is we've created, uh, we've, we've armed them with tools for them to talk about, productively talk about their reactions. Gee, you know, when you made that suggestion, I was really grateful to you for making that suggestion, even though I wasn't so crazy about the idea, but I didn't have a better one. Gee, when you spoke up and said you were bored, I noticed that I was bored too, but I was kind of afraid to say anything. Imagine the level of transparency mm -hmm. and trust that gets built. Yes. The minute yeah. people start actually telling each other the truth. So by removing any guidelines, we're going to see the interplay as they navigate that vacuum. Exactly. There's no guidelines. It's almost as if you put them into a, a totally black space, a black room. They can't see anything. And they got to sort of navigate it, who bumps in and who doesn't bump in and who talks. Who there is, and, there, and there is a meta goal, a couple. The, the goal is to create a learning laboratory. That's what a T group is. Mm -hmm. It's a learning laboratory where each one of them can the learning laboratory it, that is co-created gives every participant an opportunity to meet their learning goals. So let me give you an example. 
I, as you might have gathered, don't really have a hard time speaking up or speaking my mind. <laughs> so when I join a group, my learning goal often is to make sure I make space for other people because yes. I can have a tendency to suck a little too much oxygen mm -hmm. out of you. Someone else might come in with a learning goal to be a little bit more in there sooner. Yes. Now, what a wonderful thing for us to both find ourselves in this learning laboratory together because I can't work on my goal if they don't work on theirs and vice versa. Yes, that makes sense. So that's why it's both a co-created laboratory and a highly interdependent learning situation. Unless everybody is in, in and everybody is working on helping co-create the laboratory, it just is not, it never gets to be as robust as it needs to be. And the more robust it gets, the more people are willing to experiment with things that feel a little riskier. It's like training a boxer, right? I mean, you know, boxing, you can punch a bag as much as you want, but that doesn't make you a boxer. You have to get in the ring with someone who has complementary development needs. So maybe, yeah. maybe you yeah. want to learn how to take the offense, but you got to work with someone who's practicing their defense, right? Right. And right. unless you get those two parties in there, you're never going to develop those other skills. Well, yeah, I have a little trouble with the boxing analogy because, of course, the idea isn't to fight. And oh, sure. I mean, it's more about the right. skill development. Uh, but I, I, I think the interdependence of the learning yes. is definitely, you know, spot on. The other thing that I think is really interesting and that the reason that these students, you know, thousands of students for decades have said this class was worth the entire price of tuition. Wow. Now, the school doesn't exactly love that. Yeah. And but it's in it's unequivocal that they've said that. And why is that? It's because the lessons they learn stay with them. Yes. The rest of their lives. It's transformative in the moment, but it also stays with them. Because boy, there's and you know, I've had some students who took the class and and they were like, "Well, okay, yeah, but I don't know what the big deal was." Yeah. Not yeah. many, but I've yes. no I've had a few. Yes who write to me, you know, five years later, oh, I finally now I get it. Group was trying to tell me. Yes. But do you, do you find that it's common that students need more time to see the value of this? Or do you find that students immediately see the value? Where do you find that that distribution lies? I think the vast majority of them see a great deal of value pretty quickly. Certainly then, over yes. the course of the quarter. Now, one of the problems, one of, it's not a problem, but one of the challenges of the course, and I always say this like in week two, they come in and I'm like, okay, so you're all sitting here saying, okay, where's my epiphany? I'm yeah. supposed to have had an epiphany in this class. Yeah. And I say, yeah. no, it's a quarter long class for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> you're unlikely to have an epiphany in week two, by week two. But a lot of them have an epiphany before the quarter's over. Yeah, so, so there's immediate value, but obviously as they experience hardships at work in their personal lives and they get an opportunity to apply these skills exactly. it has a deeper resonation for them exactly they keep coming back to it yeah now do you also teach when you were at stanford and with david did you also teach this um to executives or just to so and yes is the model the same that you use yeah in fact he and i co-developed an exec ed version of this yeah and it's a similar uh, similar principles that are applied yeah it, it just happens to be a one week long <laughs> instead oh, it's of condensed a so you can't have uh, your epiphany on the second day here 
uh, you still, you know, some, you know, uh, it's accelerated. It's very intense. Yeah. And in fact, yeah. the leaders in tech uh, that I co-founded yes. after yeah. I left Stanford also has, uh, you know, and that's all for CEO founders um, in the Valley. And that also has this very intense upfront component and then uh, half a day a month for a year as the program. But the exec ed program at Stanford was one solid week. And it's, it's the same, it's the same program just condensed or, or is there something different? Uh, the core is the same. The, the core principles the are the same. The models are the sure. same. The T group is the core pedagogy is yeah. the same. Obviously there are a number of things that we can go into in much more depth sure. in the course in a quarter long course. And the journaling component that I talked about that the yeah. students do, you know, we encourage the executives to do, but, you know, they're not being graded. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, I think that they leave something on the table when they don't journal because they don't get the opportunity to go back and really think about, gee, what happened there? Why did I get all worked up? What? Gee, I do tend to get all worked up when those kinds of things happen. Mm -hmm. What is that about? So that introspection that that the students get to do is more limited with the executives so the journaling the value of the journaling is taking a moment to step back pause and reflect on what happened exactly and of course we have specific questions that we ask the students to answer in their journals so you were trying to to, to seed their minds with certain ways of thinking about what they experience. Exactly. So the journaling but is important in, in terms it, of the it whole It is process. absolutely important. And I would I would add that it's important in, as, as part of leadership development. One of the reasons that I think coaching has become so much more popular yeah. is that coaches, at the very least, a good coach, will make you pause and think about good. what was there to be learned from something you did. Instead yes, of going yeah. from experience to experience to experience. Yeah. And, so so this know, whole thing about reflection is the key here, right? Yeah. It's certainly one of the keys. Yes, one of the keys. So the bottom line here is that you're going to be doing all these things, but at some point you've got to pause and understand what happened, how you responded, what is your pattern? You know, is there something common in what you are doing? Exactly. Uh, what is holding you back? What are the right. things that people appreciate? People... And, and by the way, what brings out the best in you? Yes. What are situations that bring out the, the you that you really love being, you know, being able to bring to a situation? Yes. What, you know, not just what holds you back, but also, you know, when are you at your best? Because people talk about <laughs> journaling. It's become a big thing. I'm sure you've seen it everywhere. But no one ever talks about, well, you are journaling to create an opportunity to pause and reflect. We're back to learning. Back to learning, right? That's what it is. And do you find that, you know, your, your executive program, is the makeup also roughly 50, 40% international? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you still have that um, natural diversity built into the program. We also select for diversity. I mean, we get many, many more applicants than we have spaces. That's a, yes. You're trying to build a class where, you know, as you say, people can feed off each other. Exactly. And that's a natural part of it. And with the business you're now doing, that yes. is building on this program or is it something different? It's, it builds on everything that I taught at Stanford in addition to touchy-feely. I also taught, I, I was the director of 
something called the Arbuckle Leadership mm -hmm. Fellows Program, which was essentially teaching students how to be leaders who know how to coach and mentor. Mm -hmm. So it draws on some of that curriculum. It draws on some of the curriculum from high performance leadership and a lot on the curriculum from Touchy Feely. Okay. Now, if imagine we have a listener, right? Uh, let's yeah. say senior manager at an international firm. Now, he's not touchy-feely. Yes. Or she's not touchy-feely, right? Yes. As a starting point, how does someone go about starting to develop these skills? Assuming well, that they can't afford the Stanford executive yeah. program or get selected for it. Yeah. Well, you know, honestly, it's one of the reasons we wrote the book. So start with the book. Well, you know, let me back up for a moment. So... David had been approached many times to write a book. I'd been approached many times to write a book. When Penguin Random House came to us and said, so how come the only people who get to learn this are those that are lucky enough and privileged enough to go to Stanford Business School? How are you okay not That's having a nice that? pitch. I can see that working. That's a good pitch. It, it worked real very well. And, you know, because we had said no many times. And we said, because people can't learn this stuff from a book. Yes. And then yes. they, and then, he, you know, Daniel came back with that. And we were like, hmm, he's right. So that's why it took us four years to write this book. Four years. Four, four years. And wow. that's because wow. we were committed to putting something out in the world that would honor the work, which means at the end of every chapter, there's a section called Deepen Your Learning, yeah, which gives you a step-by-step -step thing to go do with what you just read. And then stop and think about what did you learn in the doing with some guided questions before you go on. I mean, the second chapter of the book, as you all know, is called A World-Class Course One Chapter at a Time. Yes. Yes. So that's where I would start. So first I've read the book, and I must say it's an extremely well-written book. Thank you. Uh, I don't say that about many books. Um, Thank you. In fact, I would say there are very few people who have a, you know, you have such a deep specialization in your field that you have a way of simplifying things that only, I think, experts can do. Uh, so I thought it was very well written. and I really enjoyed reading it. In fact, usually when I want to read a book, I read it in a day. But I thought, wow, this is a good book. I need to pace myself a little bit here. You did two things that I liked. You brought in personal stories about you know, how you guys also developed your touchy-feely skills. Right? I mean, I've learned a lot about your husband and David's wife through reading the book. But I also like those little uh, vignettes you, you built in about these uh, people and their stories. And it wasn't a one-off story. You kept on developing it as you were teaching the skills. So the book's very well written. Thank you. In terms of the style of writing the book, is that your, your typical writing style? Well, uh, it's more, we did not want to write an academic book. Yes, we with, with tons write, of references and citations. Yeah, yeah. We, 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 weren't, we weren't writing a textbook. We weren't writing an academic book. Uh, we wanted to write a book that would make this really accessible, yes. easy yes. to Read. Well, fun. And I think it's fun. It's a fun it's book. Fun. Exactly. Exactly. And so now David and I had collaborated on a number of occasions on papers that we'd written. Yes. Uh, which is one of the reasons we decided we would take this on because we knew we wouldn't kill each other, although we did almost That's kill a good each other. Starting point, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we rewrote every one of those chapters at least 10 times. Wow. It shows. Uh, and, and so, no, it's not how we typically write because we typically write for a very different audience. Yes. 
Well, it worked. I'm looking forward to the next book. Oh, uh, let me tell you, Michael. I don't know if there's a lot of work. Working with David has been too much. Four years, you need a break, and then maybe you'll look at it. Yeah. And you know, I have I've used this metaphor before, but writing the book was like being pregnant for three and a half years and then in labor for six months. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it was, and then and then it finally came out. And look, it came out in February of 2020, one month after the insurrection of the Capitol in the United States. Yes. As you might imagine, we couldn't get any coverage. Yes. And so I have felt like a single mother with no village to help me sit, raise this child. If we take the metaphor one step yeah, further. Yeah, one step further. So until a village shows up to help me actually raise this child, I'm surely not going to have another one. Was the release of the book delayed because of all those things? You just no. went ahead with it. And I, I, I mean, I asked, I begged. Uh, no, was not, it was not delayed. Well, I'm glad it came out. Thank I you. I think it is a contribution to the whole field. So in terms of how you, you, you take this thinking forward, right? Yeah. So now I think a good part of leadership is you, you learn something and you train other people because the leader must keep that conveyor belt going, right? Absolutely. So now let's assume people have read your work and so on, right? So the first part of uh, touchy-feely is getting in touch with your own touchy-feely, right? But the next part is making sure your, your team yeah. your yeah. team thinks in the same way. So how do you recommend people take this to their team? So imagine someone well, in industry, I, right? How do they yeah. introduce this to their team? Well, I have had a number of... Uh, it started out with a number of former students who did this, and now I have more people who've picked up the book and then done this, which is they buy a book for the six members of their team. Yeah. And they do it together. In fact, on our website, connect and www.connectandrelate.com, if you go to our website, you can download a free Start Your Own Learning Group. Well, that's nice. With, with a guide on how you can read the book with a few other people. And then you hold each other accountable. You go out and do some of these experiments. You come back and you talk about it. So that's one way to go. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, another way to go is that we've had now, I've had a number of both clients and former students who've, for instance, bought the book for a lot of, when they're in big organizations for like, the hundred top leaders yes. and then they've brought one of us in to do a talk mm -hmm. and 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 have all these leaders talk about well i tried this or what do i do when yes. and what abouts so there you know there are a number of different ways to continue to deepen your learning and we're we're working on i'm not sure at what point this will be ready but we'll probably ha start offering some kind of workshops that are related to the book. Um, is that video based or is that just a physical? Well, that's part, that's part of what we're that's part of what we're trying to sort out. Yes, the hard part. Of, how do you make it happen? Where's the, the next level of thinking? I mean, where are you taking your thinking and touchy feely? Where do you think the frontier is? That's a really wonderful question. I think, you know, in the book, we talk about the 15% rule and how you have to yeah. just grow your your comfort zone a little yes. bit at a time. You try to get too ambitious too yeah. quickly. It doesn't work. I think there is so much potential in bringing this work to places, 
to conversations that are locked in in proving each other wrong, whether that's people on two different sides of the political spectrum mm-hmm. like or, that. you know, what vaxxer, anti-vaxxer, yes. or, you know, along any of those, the discourse in this country, which is what I'm most familiar with, yes. but I think the discourse has become so toxic yeah. that nobody even thinks it's possible to have a conversation where we might learn something from each other. People have, yes. they've like, they don't even realize that you could be curious and learn something. Mm-hmm. And, and I just think that's getting worse and worse. Yes. People are so, digging into their positions. Exactly. And it's become absolutely about defending positions. Yes. And yes. to your earlier point, dehumanizing. Yes. I like what you said because, you know, obviously Stanford is a fabulous school. Uh, and I'm sure the mix of students you have is across the spectrum, right? But ultimately, there's a lot of self-selection taking place there because a certain type of person yep. applies and gets into Stanford, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, as you say, and I like this, if you want something to have the biggest impact, you've got to take it where there's the biggest problem, right? Yeah. And you've got to get... But you can't, but you can't start there. You, yes, because you can't start, you start where the biggest problem exists. You your likelihood of succeeding is much is lower, low. and then you'll get frustrated and you'll give up. So you have to start where you're likely to actually move the needle, get results, tweak, get adjust. results, get impo- feel feel stronger and more empowered, build your little army. So that's what I've always, you know, I had some students who used to call themselves part of Carol's army. Carol's army, yeah. the coalition of Carol. <laughs> And in fact, I used to, you know, I was invited to do a last lecture many years in a row before I left. And in my last lecture, I used to tell this short anecdote. I used to say, which is the story of the starfish thrower. So this story is of a burned out executive who goes away one weekend to, you know, kind of get away from it all and goes for an early morning walk as she's walking down the beach on a Saturday morning. She sees a distant figure. It looks like it, like it's dancing and so she gets closer and realizes that there's really an old man yeah. and what he's yeah. doing is he's leaning down and picking up starfish and throwing them back in the water and he'd been doing it so rhythmically that it looked like he was dancing mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. she stands there for a few minutes she says what what are you doing he says what does it look like i'm doing the tide came up deposited all these starfish tide went back out sun's coming up they're all going to fry he's and she says what are you nuts there are thousands, tens of thousands of starfish on this beach. What difference can you possibly make? And he leans down and he picks up a starfish and he throws it in the water and he says, I made a difference to that one, didn't I? And then she joins him. And my students, anybody who attended my last lecture, considers themselves a starfish thrower. I like that story. It's about, it's about slowly getting the message out. It's another way of saying it is that you can't change the world yourself. You've got to bring your ideas to other people to help you spread the word. Absolutely. And, you know, I have said somewhat jokingly and somewhat not jokingly that the, our book to me feels like a new gospel. And we're looking for, <laughs> desperately looking for some apostles. Your teaching in general, I actually enjoyed reading about it. Because I've listened to many, many uh, takes on leadership and touchy-feely. But there's two things that stand out. One is your style of writing. It's very accessible. 
your stories, those little vignettes about you and David almost killing each other a few times. And it just <laughs> makes it very powerful because one of the things you talk about is being vulnerable, but it's very hard to take it seriously when the author is teaching you about the concept, but he's not practicing the concept. Absolutely. You know, that's, that, that is the, the biggest challenge to teaching these particular skills is that you have to live them. And they can be embarrassing, right? Sure, but it's also incredibly powerful. Yes, and I mean, I think it was you, you, David or yourself said the story about whereby one of you had to present and then acknowledge that you're not necessarily the expert in a field, right? To a tenured professor or something like that? Oh yeah, that was, yeah. That was you, right? Yeah, that was me. There's two parts here. One is you, you did it, which is risky. And two, you tell people you did it, which is magnifying the risk exponentially. Right? Actually, no, there are two stories. One is David yeah. talking about the fact that he wasn't tenured. Yeah, that's David. Yes, that's the one I remember. That was David at a, at a small conference where there were tenured professors in the audience. That's a difficult thing to do, right? That's, because, that's, you know, as you know, the world of tenure and professors, it's, it's a very close and a tough world where everyone's peer reviewing you in person. There's the other story about you. I remember this whereby a most senior tenured professor had to take the lead and show you some vulnerability, right? Yeah, well, he came. He came to me and said, I don't understand why the students love you so much. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a backhanded compliment. Right? Uh, you know, what is it that you're doing? Tell me uh, so I can replicate it. And then God bless him. Not only not only was he, you know, very affirming in, in what he said to me. And then I had some suggestions and then he went and implemented them. And then he always in, in his very first class, he used to say, I want you all to know that I owe Carol Robin, you know, a lot of what I've done to make this class better. So there's another example of someone very senior gains your trust by being sincere about, I'll use the word development area he has, yeah. which not only can be embarrassing to him, it's something that can hurt his reputation. Except that it increased his reputation stronger, yeah. as, at least among the students. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, nobody's ever going to say, well, you know, you learned this from carols. I'm walking out of your class. Nobody's going to say that. But but isn't it true that in our minds, we build these traps of what we think oh, is going to happen? Absolutely. We're, you know, we hold so much fear. And I used to have a colleague who used to say fear is an acronym for false expectations appearing real. Oh, I like that. I haven't heard that. False expectations appearing real. Yeah. I mean, sometimes fear is, and sometimes there's a good reason to be afraid, but so often we're afraid, we're worrying forward. We're afraid of something happening that, you know, maybe, maybe it's something that would have happened 20 years ago when we were, I'll give you an example. And this is in the book. Mm -hmm. So remember when I first went to work uh, in industrial automation straight yes. out of college and I was the first woman yes. in a non-clerical job in a yeah. very large organization. Well, I learned pretty quickly that I shouldn't show any feelings. And that was smart for me to learn. And then 10 years later, I was still afraid to show any feelings. Only by then, people didn't think I was human. <laughs> That's a common problem I've heard with female executives. So so the, I had overlearned, 
you know, fear, false yeah. expectations appear. I had an old mental model, a set of beliefs and assumptions that had served me at one time and had stopped serving me. And that's a lot of what the students learn in touchy feely. Oh, oh yeah. There was a time when I thought I shouldn't share this, but now I actually am finding out that if I am willing to share this, people see me as strong instead of weak. Yeah, and there's like only one way to find that out is to create a safe enough environment and a laboratory where you get to experiment. What you said is probably, I would say, one of the most common patterns in the world. There are some of us who share our feelings authentically from a young age, and it's natural for us and we're okay with it. But I would say the majority were so scared of judgment. They spend oh, yeah. their 20s learning how to bottle away their feelings and not showing any feelings. And then when they get to a certain point in their career, they don't know why they cannot connect. They don't know why they well, alienate people. Yeah. And I'll tell you, Michael, even if it came naturally to you as a child, we it is Society socialized out of us. Yes. You know, think about the, you know, the kid that falls down in the playground and, you know, mom runs over and says, you're OK, you're OK. Because she doesn't feel good about the fact that he's hurt. Yes. <laughs> it's like, no, actually, it hurts. Oh, yeah, yeah I can yeah. see that hurts. But then by the time you get to being a teenager, if your mom ever came to you to school to find out if it hurt, you'd be ostracized forever. Yeah, you've been, I mean, it, it's slowly but surely socialized out of us as something, you know, something to be a, a weakness, something to be avoided, uh, you know, something that someone else will take advantage of. And then we have to like retrain ourselves as adults to, and that's by the way, not only a reason that people don't share their feelings, it's a reason that a lot of people can't even access them. Yes, emotionally distant. And you've heard all the terms, right? I mean, when, when we will ask a student, so how, what are you feeling? They'll be like, Hmm, I, I, I don't know. That's why we have to d develop the vocabulary of feelings, which is part of the yes. syllabus and in, and in the appendix of the book. Like, imagine that. We have to actually develop a vocabulary of feelings. You actually said something quite profound. It's not that people are hiding their feelings. At a certain age, they cannot access and they don't know. They're so numb. They've never been trained to develop that muscle, right? Whatever it's called. Right. The synapse. Yeah, so... <laughs> There's a skill, a power they, they should have to be successful yeah. that they've never trained. They don't know it's there. It's almost dormant in some cases. Yep. It needs to be reactivated through a, you know, all these exercises, journaling and so on. And unfortunately, you know, even today when you look at leadership, anything about management leadership, we still lionize the leaders who get the big results without wondering how they got the big results and whether right, it's Right, right. I was going to say, we don't double click on how did that happen. Exactly. And some of them, some of them get the big results in spite of themselves. Exactly. In spite of the cultures that they've created. You know, there's a lot to be said for being in the right place at the right time with the right product. Yes. And it's the halo effect, right? If your share price goes up, your profits are high, people assume you were good at managing people. On the other hand, you could have been at the right place, you know, you could have positioned yourself as an electric company, stock goes up, but you pretty you did a pretty bad job at hiring people, developing them, preparing them and so on. I mean the valley the valley is the you know, is 
There's so many examples of that in the Valley of right place, right time with the right product and doing all the worst possible things with regard to building a culture and, and developing leaders. It was a very low priority for a long time. It's the first time you use the word culture, but that's what it is, isn't it? Oh, yeah. The way you access your feelings, the way you use your feelings in a good way to connect with people, all those interactions, you add them up and that's a culture you've created. Uh, right. And if you think about what's the definition of culture, culture is the way we do things around here. Yeah. And the way we do things around here is either we tell each other the truth or we hide. Yes. We either normalize being transparent and authentic or we don't. Yes. We, you know, we, we invest in people by actually giving them constructive feedback in ways that help empower them yeah. or we don't. Don't, that's all elements of culture of a, of, a, of a company. Yeah, you know, if you look at every single major disaster in the corporate world, even in the scientific world, like the Challenger disaster and so on. Totally. People weren't telling each other the exactly. truth. Exactly. People were too afraid or locked out or blocked out or disincentivized to tell the truth. That's what it always comes down to because these are really smart people, right? Absolutely. They paid a lot of money. They, they're seeing what's well happening. Intentioned. Exactly. Smart, well-intentioned people. I mean, there are a few sociopaths, but most yeah. of them are not. Most of them are not, yes. And and yet, they, you know, there's this, there's this way in which the fear, I, you know, I think a lot of the work that we talk about is in, and we've we mentioned this before, is in getting ourselves, is in identifying how we came to believe something and then letting go of the data that informed that view with new data. So yes, for example, yes. let's go to, let's talk about feedback for a moment. A lot of people are afraid to give it somebody else feedback, constructive feedback. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, ugh, I've, stepped, I've stepped in that pile of doo-doo yeah. before, I'm not yeah. doing that again. Well, of course you never get better at it yeah. by not doing it. But the other thing is, so you've got data that said, oh, I tried telling that person that what they were doing was actually a problem and they got all offended and then our relationship, what the heck in that? Hand basket and so, well, have you ever allowed, can you allow for the possibility that there may be a way to say it to them that actually builds a stronger relationship? Not only does it not ruin the relationship, maybe it builds a stronger one. You know, a lot of, a lot of people say, you know, when, especially when they're annoyed, eh, it's not worth it. And we say, as you know, in the book, mm -hmm. substitute mm -hmm. the word it for I, you, or we. Mm -hmm. I'm not worth it. You're not worth it. We're not worth it. And then ask yourself again whether it's not worth saying something. Yeah, and I think the thing to remember here is that the word feedback is maybe a bad word. We're giving someone useful advice to make them actually, better. Actually, not even advice. We're giving them data. We're giving them data. Data, data with which to make more informed choices about what they want to do next. Yeah, something I find is also because we construct this paradigm in our head of things we shouldn't do, call it fear. We then develop routines around that. But what I find helpful is sometimes to change your routine. Yes. And expose yourself to something completely new. Yes. That makes you appreciate and like something that you thought you should have been afraid of. Yeah. Because if you, if, you, if you think about what a routine is, it's basically a physical manifestation of what you think about, right? Right. And, 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 and we know we know what Einstein used to say, right? 
doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result is one of the definitions of insanity. But it's true. And in, in so many, I mean, I've done it many times, so many smart, capable people who, ma who manage multi-billion dollar businesses get into these paradigms, these looping mechanisms in their mind. Yep. Thank you, Carol. I really enjoyed that. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it greatly, too. But is there anything you want to add before we wrap up? Because, you know, we covered a lot. It was a very good conversation, I thought. Uh, Thank you. You know, I think what, I, what I'd, I'd like to add sounds a little Pollyanna-ish, but I really believe with every fiber of my being that if we could get a critical mass of people on this planet to learn these skills, we would have not just better businesses and better teams, we'd have better families, healthier yeah. families, yeah. healthier schools, better communities. I just, I watch what hap I, I watch what happens when people, when the light goes on for people, and then I watch what happens in their little ecosystems yes. when they bring yes. this to their little, and, and of course, we see it at Stanford. I mean, the culture at the Stanford Graduate School of Business is decidedly different than the culture at almost any other business school for this reason. You know, what you say makes perfect sense. As you know, right now there's a big debate in the United States about what the curriculum should be for schools, right? There's two things that are being pushed there. One is about a more socially diverse, inclusive um, curriculum. And the other one is teaching kids about how to manage money, right? Yeah. But it, it seems to me that we should teach people how to interact better as well. Totally. And that's completely missing from the conversation. Yeah. It's one thing to appreciate. It's another thing to know how to appreciate someone. Yeah. And by the way, it requires tremendous curiosity and suspending judgment. And, yes. you know, have we gotten away from that? We're very quick to judge instead of get curious. Gee, I wonder how you came to see it that way. Yeah, you know, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but, some, you know, you, you speak to so many people when you tell them something, you can see the look on the face they're judging you. But you know that feeling when you speak to someone and they are not judging you? That look on their face, you, you may basically want to hug that person, right? Because it's so rare. Because it's very connecting. Exactly. To speak to somebody who appears to be actually interested in what you have to say. Yeah, they're not judging you. I mean, they may disagree, but they're just listening to you. There's no judgment. There's no disagreement. There's no, there's no negative vibe in that. And maybe there's even like, wow, I'm learning something interesting. Exactly. Well, there's another project for you, uh, Carol, trying to get this into the <laughs> high school curriculum. Yeah, that that one is that one's perhaps more viable than writing another book. <laughs> Take care, Carol. I really appreciate speaking to you. It was fantastic. Thank you very much. Let us know how to uh, how to amplify whatever you put out. We will do that. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.